It's the Relevant Top 50, counting down the best music, TV, books, and movies of 2016. This Relevant Podcast miniseries is brought to you by Videoblocks. Videoblocks is an affordable, subscription-based stock media site that gives you unlimited access to premium stock footage. Videoblocks also has a sister site, Audioblocks, that offers unlimited access to 130,000 premium music tracks, sound effects, and loops. Right now, Videoblocks is offering our listeners a year subscription to both Videoblocks and Audioblocks for only $149. It's an incredible discounted deal to get both stock video and audio files for any project. Get your year subscription today for only $149 at videoblocks.com relevant. That's V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash relevant for this discounted offer. Now here's the show. Welcome to Relevant Top 50, our countdown on the best music, TV shows, movies, and books of 2016. I'm Jesse Carey, an editor here at Relevant, and here with me on today's show is Relevant's El Capitan, Cameron Strang. Hi. For the record, for the record, Chandler really was insistent that I go with big cheese today, but I went with El Capitan. I figure it was more dignified. I understand. Well, it's the week after Thanksgiving. I'm I'm detoxing off all the big cheese that I had last week. (laughs) Also with us today is Relevant's managing editor, uh, Rebecca Jo Flores. Hi, guys. Uh, also joining us, uh, Relevance Editorial Director, Aaron Hanbury. Hello. And behind the ones and twos, our producer, Chandler Strang. Hello. So in case this is your first time listening, the, the Relevant Top 50 is a countdown of our favorite pop culture releases of the year. And you've tuned in at a good part because we are, we are we're, cr- we're crossing the halfway threshold today. This is big a big day. day. We, are, we are into the top 25 as cut, of this episode. We've cut the fat. Yep, this is all meat. Mm-hmm. This is top sirloin. <laughs> it's getting good. It's getting <laughs> from, good from here from on out. From here on out is pure meat. All the gristle, all the fat has burned off, and you're in for a succulent <laughs> piece of pop culture steak today, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so we're going to jump right in. Last summer, Manchester Spring King became the first band ever played on Beats 1. And when you hear their debut, tell me if you like it too. It's easy to see what all the buzz is about. The band's raw punk rock energy fuels catchy songs recorded with gritty production, creating a signature song. Coming in at number 26, Spring Kings, Tell Me If You Like It Too. Rolls back. It is. Oh, that, yeah. that song is an audio cup of coffee. It just it just wakes you up and gets you ready. To more, go. more food metaphors. All right. <laughs> yeah. hey, can you tell this is the post Thanksgiving episode? We've already <laughs> talked about meat, cheese, and coffee, That's and true. we're not even into the first <laughs> one. Uh, you know what I love about this album is that it comes in a year uh, that seems to be infatuated with, um, in, in a good way, I guess. But like you know, really interesting electronic textures and scents and those kind of things. And I think it was a bit of a, a bit of fresh air to just listen to some rock music. Yeah, I think yeah, this was a really good version. I feel like of last that. year, though, was more of the EDM kind of top 40 coming of age. And this year continued to Bieber and, Mo mm-hmm. and different ones. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I agree with you that, that 
I mean, listen Their to departure this. from that. And even though they're from the UK, they feel kind of like that West Coast, you know, beachy, yeah. wearing vans, going like to take my skateboard out and mm-hmm. just chill kind of day. They did move to LA, so maybe that's yeah. influenced. But, but but the cool the cool thing is like because they definitely have that like punk rock sensibility, but not in like the super polished, uh, you know, like modern postmodern pop punk, uh, uh, you know, bands that broke out. They're more of like a throwback to more recent releases from bands like The Strokes or The Hives mm-hmm. or oh, even totally. like the first Arctic Monkeys yeah. release that has sort of like this New York rock or like a London kind of street rock sound that's way more gritty or way more uh, unpolished and has like a, a totally different kind of energy than some of the mm-hmm. like emo infused punk rock albums that we've heard in the last like so five you're saying years this so. is more the clash than it is blink 182 is what you're saying oh absolutely <laughs> yeah they're the real thing i think but i mean I'm, I'm looking at their instagram and they between the four of them they have like they're four cute feet of aren't hair. they they're really good looking i mean you know whatever <laughs> whatever <laughs> <laughs> she didn't even notice <laughs> i did yeah notice. yeah she was just looking at their their <laughs> you said four feet of hair <laughs> between the four of them yeah that's an interesting. That's an interesting way to measure the collective hair volume of individuals. <laughs> listen, but, uh, listen. There's a picture of four people. I am going to add up the total length of each of their hairs into no, but, one but total dimension. That is a really. That's a really odd assessment of any picture I've ever seen. Yeah. Like, did you notice all the hair in Look that, at that photo? Group of people. You know how many pounds of hair <laughs> there are. Po- they must be. Po- if you divide po- that by the number of people in the photo, it's a, it's a yeah. higher percentage yeah. of hair than we're used to. No, but oh, I think the man. other the other thing that I really appreciate is like the sound that they were able to capture on this record. It's actually really difficult to do to get that wall of sound where mm. all the instruments, it's not muddy, but all the instruments become this one big, like I said, it's the Phil Spector wall of sound feel where it just hits you right out of the gate and is really unrelenting, mm. but they captured it and it's a feeling that goes throughout the whole album. Yeah. So, you know, they came out uh, June of 2015. Like you said, they were the first song played ever on Apple's Beats 1 launch. And they were just, nobody had ever heard of them before. They were a non-touring bedroom garage band, you know, from the UK that, you know, Zane Lowe put on the international stage. And all of a sudden, everybody's like, man, who is that? Where's their album? There was no album. So the other thing that's surprising about this is that they had the expectations of needing to deliver on, you know, the promise of that first hit single, City, which is what we heard originally. Um, and, and the album actually does. Uh, the album that came out this yeah. year, finally, after nine months or a year-long uh, delay from their debut, um, they became a real real rounded-out band. I mean, they hit the road, they play festivals, they opened for a ton of... I mean, they paid their dues. Yeah. And then the album that came out of that is legit. So good for them. Because, yeah. I mean, yeah. they aren't just a one-hit wonder, great little single yeah, niche. Absolutely. They actually delivered a full album of that. Mm-hmm. So it's Plus, great. It's a lot of fun. Good for them. A yeah. lot of fun. HBO's new show starring Sarah Jessica Parker and Thomas Hayden Church is taking a different approach to the marriage sitcom. Instead of focusing on two people's relationship growing, divorce shows it falling apart. Along with a stellar cast, which also includes Molly Shannon and Jermaine Clement, the show is smartly written with a tone that constantly straddles humor and heartbreak. Coming in at number 25, divorce. What we had was crazy and fun, but it ended because it needed to end. 
right? I want to get to a place where you can trust me. What would it take for us to get to that place? Time machine? It's not helpful. It's not helpful. If we were talking about the HBO's show Divorce um, in light of the show that it airs next to, which is Insecure, mm-hmm. and both are kind of breakout hits and, and water cooler shows this year. Um, and, and we chose to go with Divorce on our list uh, instead of Insecure, not, not because Insecure isn't a phenomenal show in its own right. Um, Insecure uh, illuminates a, a narrative that, that obviously Divorce doesn't. It's very unique in its own right. I would say from relevance, unique vantage point, Insecure has a little bit more uh, gratuitous, explicit content that would be tough for us to uh, qualify. Whereas Divorce um, uh, doesn't uh, as much. It's it's rough around the edges, uh, mm-hmm. notably, but it connects in a way with our audience. A lot of our audience on the younger end of the age spectrum are grew up in families that were impacted by divorce. Yeah. And this um, kind of shows maybe a side of that, that if you were a child experiencing it, uh, you wouldn't have understood, you know, seeing yeah. it from the parents' perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then the people on the older end of our age spectrum within our relationship are, are going through the issues that this family ha- have gone through. And, and this story is ending in divorce. Um, many in our audience have had a similar trajectory and many haven't, but the re the kind of transparency and openness that this show has taken with, uh, what not only the, the things that led to the ultimate decision to divorce, but kind of now backing it up and kind of untying all the things that led them to that place. It's a very familiar thing that if you've been in a long-term relationship, you can relate to. So there's like two aspects of this spectrum mm. that this show is connecting with and it doesn't get uh, cliche ever. Mm. I mean, yeah. it doesn't just like play into big tropes about divorce or whatever. It's very honest and vulnerable and there really is Nuanced moments of humor. Yeah. yeah, there's moments yeah. of humor and levity and freedom and pain and regret and you know, like all of it's kind of woven in in this very relatable storyline. It's when, really good. When Sarah Jessica Parker was developing the show four years ago, um, she brought up that point in a recent interview. She's like, we all know someone who's been through divorce, contemplated divorce, survived divorce. And it's that kind of story that we all have some peripheral, if not direct, access to. And she's like telling that story on screen. Yeah. So that's really cool. Yeah. That's why I kind of thought her casting, you know, obviously, you know, she's a big creative part of the show, but her brand with HBO, you know, she was coming off of, you know, the years of like sex in the city, which was had much more of a flippant attitude towards yeah. relationships where the tone of this is so different and serious. And there's so many moments of like genuine reflection. And I mean, it is funny, you know, but, but also like it, it does like strike such a sincere tone uh, about you know these types of situations that it, it's refreshing and it's different from anything else on TV. Too. I'm just so happy I, to see SJP back on yeah. TV. She's great. Well, the, I think her and uh, Th- Thomas Hayden Church. Yeah, yeah. He the way that they handle their roles, like it's not heavy handed mm-hmm. and it's not serious. It's not like somber. It's just yeah. real. Mm-hmm. Like there's yeah. points where you just. It really is just funny and it really is relatable. Mm, yeah. Like 
Sex and City, while you know it was kind of this crazy lifestyle, it was it, it never felt that crazy because you related to the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like they do a fantastic job with the acting where you actually relate to this family. You know, so yeah, yeah there's a there's a light touch to it, but yeah. it, it 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 handles like a heavy topic delicately and yeah. interestingly. And yeah. like I said, I, it stands out from a lot of stuff on the TV landscape this year. Yeah, what I think stands out about it, it is kind of summarizes everything I've been saying, but. It, it takes marriage um, for a TV show dealing with divorce. It takes marriage, I think, notably seriously. You know, like there's yeah. there's there's no sense of like, you know, it's just a lifestyle and you move on and pop into the next relationship and some of the other characters you see of it on uh, TV and movies, et cetera. And I think that creates an interesting dynamic to to the show when when there's this like, so it's a comedy and it's about a couple getting a divorce, but it's taking this topic very seriously and it, it gives it a flavor that I think is is. Different, which is why I, I'm I agree, about it. especially in a 30 minute uh, by definition comedy. You know, like I was, mm-hmm. I happened to be watching one one episode of The Office the other mm-hmm. day, season five or something like that. And Jim and Pam were engaged but not yet married. And Jim had a conversation with Pam's dad or something. And then Pam's dad ended up moving out and leaving mm-hmm. Pam's mom. And Pam was very upset with Jim. What did you say to him? You know, and Jim says to the camera, well, you know, I, I like, he has no idea what he said, you know? And he's yeah. like, well, but you know, 50% of marriages end in divorce. So it was either my parents or her parents mm-hmm. and just treated it flippantly. And he wasn't, yeah. being, he was just trying to be humorful in a moment where he didn't know what he did wrong, yeah. but it's just like, it had that flippancy about marriage and divorce. Mm-hmm. And and this show doesn't. This show rings authentic. And, and again, yeah. without it being this like somber, oh, I guess I should watch this show. It's actually a great, fun show to watch. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just this interesting, delicate. Uh, you said a light touch. I like that. It mm-hmm. treats yeah, it with a light touch. Yeah. Well, Shauna Nequest is known for her relatable writings about food, faith, and life. Never heard but of her. In- <laughs> Maybe you've heard of her 2016 book, Present Over Perfect, Cameron. What? Because it tackles a new kind of spiritual problem, perfectionism. In a world where efficiency is viewed as almost a moral value and filtered snapshots of our friends' lives played out daily on Instagram, the book is a reminder about the importance of being present for the moments that matter most. Coming in at number 24, Shauna Nequest, Present Over Perfect. I got to a place in my life about three years ago where I realized that I had allowed um, values like efficiency, speed, achievement, uh, pushing, competing, comparing. I had allowed those to become the most important things in my life instead of things that I really believed I had valued, like connection, grace, laughter, spontaneity, play, presence. Um, And I I had a couple really clear, really painful moments where I realized that my life didn't match my values anymore. That I thought I was a certain kind of person, but if you looked at my life on the outside, or frankly, if you had to spend time with me, you realized I I wasn't living a gracious, spontaneous, warm, whimsical life. I was pushing really hard to get stuff done. And and some of the best parts of me were sort of being... um, eclipsed by that pressure. Yeah, that was our us talking with Shauna on enjoying one of these uh, present moments on the streets of Chicago this summer. That's true. We were up there for Lollapalooza and we obviously make her pick out the lunch spot and, uh, Clearly. and we did. And then afterwards we were like, we had the recording gear because we wanted to do a talk to her about the book. It was coming out that week. Uh, for the podcast. And so <laughs> there was nowhere to go because the restaurant was loud. Then we went and got coffee. The coffee shop was loud. So we ended up finding this little park next to the coffee shop right under the L. So throughout the recording of that uh, uh, conversation, uh, we had to just 
pause while trains would go overhead. <laughs> and we got really good at it by the end. I mean, like yeah. you'd be talking and then the train, like you just stop mid sentence, the train would pass and then you'd finish your sentence and then it, it was clean editing. <laughs> Plus it's, it's not about being perfect. Right. Yeah, we, but exactly. we were, it's, we it's were a perfect metaphor for the book. I mean, <laughs> we, we were would totally only present, do, even though the train we was so as well. present in that little part. And we would only do the interview. We wouldn't do it over the phone. We would only do it yeah. if we were present with her, <laughs> which would make it perfect. <laughs> that, that, that was the main takeaway from the book, actually. You know, some might say that there's, there are enough books about this topic being present over perfect, but Shauna brings a really incredible, um, I don't know, vitality to it, where she's very vulnerable about... A light, a light touch. A light touch, yes. She's very vulnerable <laughs> she's about like the fact that, you or... know, she looked at her life and, and didn't see that it lined up with her values. And yeah. I think that, you know, especially people that are 25, 27, you know, people that grew up kind of with Facebook and Instagram being introduced as they were coming of age and defining who they were, right. where that image management and that pressure to like, always project a certain level of perfection. Well, Instagram life. I yeah, mean, yeah, Instagram yeah, life. It's an Instagramable life. This, I mean, uh, these moments, these things that you try to portray. Yeah, this book is so true. important because yeah. it speaks to that and how to like reclaim your life from this pressure we all are subject to that we might not even choose to engage in, but we're subject to it. You could be, Jesse, you could be completely present and connected and totally, wholly there with your kids. Or you could be a million miles away thinking about work stuff. And to the outside viewer, it looks the same. So it's a lot more about training our own kind of impulses and habits. Because for you, it's not like, well, I'm home, I'm here. Because you work at home and I work at home. And, you know, um, it's about a deeper sense of holding yourself accountable to live according to your values, even though it might look uh, different than it did 75 years ago or something. Yeah. One thing, anyone who's read uh, Shauna knows that her writing is like super relatable because she is so vulnerable and transparent with her own experiences and her own stories. And the thing that really jumped out to me, and you can, and this is one thing she alluded to in that uh, bit of our interview there, is like, this is such a subtle trap to fall into, this sense of perfectionism and efficiency where it's like, well, I can, I can knock out a few emails right here before bed. And then it just starts creeping into your life. And, you know, there's an anecdote in the story about her on a Saturday morning, like knocking a few things out. And then she looks up and her kids and her husband are like sitting around, like hanging out, watching cartoons together and having a good time. She's in the same room with them, but she might as well be in a different place. And I, and I think, you know, a lot of people don't realize they've fallen into it until they have those moments where they look up and realize they're not enjoying the, the life they're working hard to, you know, build for themselves. And this book not only uh, uh, shows ways that you can realize for that for yourself, but also shows ways to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And like like you were saying, uh, Rebecca, I think it's a book that's really needed and a book that's particularly uh, powerful this year, where you know this kind of trend of always being on is is coming to a crescendo. Hopefully, my uh, my my personal takeaway from the book. I, I've got the the president of a perfect thing mastered. Uh, by the way, I don't have the work life <laughs> balance issues you all do. Yeah, Cameron leaves his cell phone at the office yeah. when he leaves every day. We don't get emails from him at eleven p.m. <laughs> Never. The uh, the thing that the thing that really struck me was because um, I I feel like it would be if you haven't read the book, it'd be easy to dismiss it by going, okay, well, I just heard y'all's conversation and summary of the book. I don't need to read it, which now. it is a good conversation, but. Um, and the the book actually goes to an unexpected place about two thirds of the way in where she starts shifting into talk about identity mm-hmm. and the need for, or like, why are we the way we are? That 
is where I was on an airplane with tears in my eyes. Like, mm-hmm. like it was really powerful. And, and to me, it's worth, I mean, it, the book offers a lot more than just uh, what the cover would imply it does. You know, it's not just mm-hmm. summary statement thesis you figure it out and move on. You know what I mean? It's a book yeah. you actually want to finish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite thing about this book coming out, um, well, in the, in the latest issue of, of Relevant that we're at least sending to print, working on now, wrapping up, sending to print, we recommend several writers uh, for our readers to, to engage with in the coming year. And uh, in a lot of ways, Shauna is... is uh, the one that doesn't belong among the group because most of the people I found or we found um, were writing about social issues and society and things that are very important and we need to be saying, but I think it's very refreshing. And the reason we included Sean in that list among other reasons is, is that it's a helpful pause to stop and, and be introspective. Um, yeah. And, and there's so much going on that you could always be worried about in the world. Um, and so her, her thesis being present over perfect is important. And I think even the idea of stopping worrying about society and everyone else for a little bit and focusing on you and your family is, is also a breath of fresh air. Yeah. 2016's American Prodigal represents a new chapter for David Crowder. Long known for his soulful worship ballads, Crowder's latest album finds the singer grappling with honest spiritual struggles while experimenting with big anthems and Southern rock-inspired songwriting. Coming in at number 23... Crowder's American Prodigal. Aaron, you, you, you talked to Crowder a little bit about uh, the direction of this album. What, from your conversation with him, what was sort of one of the surprising takeaways when he was approaching American Prodigal? Because I feel like a lot of people do know him early on from you know some of his like more straight-up worship stuff, mm-hmm. where this one has definitely a different feel to it. Sure. I mean, I grew up in the era where like every youth group worship song we sang was was Crowder band music. Yeah. Um, and so and this album takes a, a different direction. And yeah, you're right. I, I did sit down with David for actually a pretty long interview and we talked and he's always one of my favorite people to talk to because he, he thinks really deeply about why he does what he does, uh, which isn't necessarily a comment on... His managers were not happy. You guys got into it and they were... I was out in the hall with them they, well, and we they were like... doors here and I could, I could see their angst. They were like, <laughs> like pacing and not happy because he loves to talk and they had to go. I mean, they had to leave. Like, and I love to ask deep important questions that people have to think about. <laughs> if you do um, say so yourself. I, I am saying so. Oh, actually yeah. all the questions were about his beard and hair growth strategies. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. It, so what David did in this album is he had explored in his previous project, which I think was neon steeple, uh, a couple, uh, what you might call swampy or gulfy songs, uh, something that had a very Louisiana feel to it. Uh, and then this album brought that full force. And he tells a little story about one of the songs they're getting together and they're playing and, and they go down this, this track of this swamp or, or back porch or whatever you want to call it. And he said, everybody stopped at the end of the song and looked at him and was like, what was that? What just happened? And he said, it was kind of like this moment that after all these years, he like found his voice. And what he said to me was he he feels like he found the genre and the style of music and singing that just kind of fit who he is as an artist, both his attitude um, and and in terms of his taste and culture. He also relates it to he lives in Atlanta now. He lives literally on a historic white black line um, when it goes back to days of segregation, these kind of things. 
And so a big part of this album is not only a fusion of black, white music, gospel, soul, um, and then some of this, this swamp backwoods type music, uh, but those cultural classes sonically, it's coming through lyrically as well. And so all that's kind of coalescing in this album uh, that he says really it fits who he is. And I think you hear that. I think in the album you can tell that, that it's, it's something um, special is happening. Yeah. Oh, you're One thing that's played to sort of an interesting effect throughout this album is if you, when you listen to it, it's like they turn the kick drum up like twice as high as it normally is. And it gives it every song like this really big driving sound that I think whether intentionally or not creates like this sort of like urgency throughout the record where you just feel something driving behind it. Uh, it was an interesting creative decision, but I feel like it really works. It's, you know, a, a cool feature in this album that, you know, definitely gives it its own feeling and tone. Yep. <laughs> did, you guys, did you guys not think that deeply about the production value? That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. I, you know, when I listen to Crowder, I go into a dark room. I put uh, studio level headphones on. I close my eyes and just go where it takes me. So you know, I, I also go into a dark room. I just get a big old block of cheese and just settle in and just just work my way through the cheese and the album. You know. Yeah, I mean, by by, by the time it's over, I've eaten two bricks of cheese and feel terrible. Jesse, but, uh, Jesse's kids know when it's Crowder and cheese time. They, yeah. <laughs> Like I'm retreating to my lair. Yeah. <laughs> I have a special room in the house. Yeah, he has a big old wheel of brie and a, and a boom box, and like you're gonna see daddy tomorrow. He's gonna be present in that moment. He will not be distracted by work, other music. They, they just see me come out of the room with with cheese all over my face, and I go. It's the kick drum. The kick drum is what makes it different. It opens your eyes to it. Right, I really yeah, think it was a departure this time. Irish singer-songwriter James Vincent McMorrow's latest album, We Move, isn't easy to define. It's a hybrid of R&B, soul, and experimental electronica. At times recalls vocalists like Bon Iver, songwriters like James Blunt, and beats that are both danceable and soulful. But despite its electronic influences, We Move maintains a haunting sound that's all its own. Coming in at number 22, James Vincent McMorrow's We Move. Love the way your heart and no room. Mm. Your heart Come on now. So good. Even good when you're Lord. so cruel. Love it with your heart cool. Remember when my hands they turn blue. Love it with your heart cool. I love the way you hang with no fool. Love it with your heart I didn't want to turn it down. Let's yeah. just let's just sit here and get a block of cheese and sit here and listen to James with <laughs> yeah. yeah. Somebody be go pick up some cheese. <laughs> Goodness gracious, that's so good. So good. Early on, people because like Jack Garrett was on our first episode when we first started this, and people were like, "How is Jack Garrett, uh, you know, like this low?" And then earlier uh, we heard like uh, last episode, Majid Jordan, and I feel like they both sort of have this R and B influence. And you know, early on, I feel like people were like making the case that they could be higher. But when you hear this album, 
you, you realize why they are where they, they are. All because be, they I feel like be this higher. elevates R&B and that whole soulful sound to a totally different level. Even though they're great artists and we really like those records, this is in its a league of its own. I still think Jack Garrett should have been higher, FYI. But uh, but what I love about James Winston McMorrow is that he has the the kind of electronic deconstruction aesthetic of James Blank or James yeah. Blunt, but has a more melodic kind of straightforwardness, a little bit more of an accessible pop aesthetic that you can like connect with easily. Yeah. This is just a really good R and B pop electronic something as singer songwriter you can't like quite nail what you like about it you can't quite nail the genre and i enjoy music like that Mm -hmm. i feel like we had we debated early on to the new bony vera record to the death yeah to the death and uh, not to bring it back up but i've been (laughs) gnawing some cheese and need to get some things off my chest um Did you hear the snares on that one, though? <laughs> I did. I mean, it was really crisp. It was really crisp. You bring it all down to the snares. Interesting I feel like that's really what no, but what I was going to say is, like, I feel like Boney Vera went in a totally weird experimental uh, uh, place with mm-hmm. his latest record. That that worked to an extent. But yeah. mm-hmm. I feel like this sort of, like, self-reflective... Uh, falsetto soul that again it's so hard to describe what he's doing is yeah. this is kind of kind of where Bon Iver could have gone yeah. but I'm glad there's an artist like James Pimpumaro who is doing that but better than Bon Iver probably could yeah Ooh. honestly you could put this on Fight over the holidays like you know Snap. have your grandparents listen to it and yeah. they'd be like be, they're like oh this yeah. is cool I enjoy cool music yeah you know, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah in a way that Bon Iver might be a little lost on him yeah, yeah. Right. and I think yeah people who are James Vincent Mimero fans Fans, Moro. Moro, fans, uh, they're going to like, you know, nobody's going to listen to it and be like, oh, this is cool, but it's nothing like what I've been a fan of all these years. There's an accessibility to it that was kind of admirable, again, in a year where experimental stuff uh, tended to reign. I haven't been playing three songs from any albums, but we're going we're gonna to round it Let's out with it. this. Let's do it. Because if you're alone, if you're alone, can I say? Listen, so I want you to notice the snare drums. Also, I love what he's doing there. Talking about I don't want to live without your love could be about Jesus. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I, I assume this was a worship album like Crowder's. I've been worshiping to it. Does that make me a heretic? <laughs> I go into my prayer closet and put on some James and Mark Morrow and get some cheese. Wait, this yeah. isn't a worship album? Yeah, the the Jack Garrett stream goes a little more hip hop, EDM, experimental. The James Vincent Morris stream goes a little more synth pop and mm-hmm. school. It's yeah. just great. It's just a good, mm-hmm. good kind of weird blended genre that all these artists are in. I enjoy it. Well, best known for his stand-up comedy, hip-hop albums under the name Childish Gambino, and his role in the sitcom community, in 2016, Donald Glover released his most personal project to date, a dramatic comedy about Atlanta hip-hop culture. 
The show combines talk about big social issues like race, poverty, and violence with deeply personal themes like failure, identity, and chasing your dreams, becoming one of the year's most acclaimed new shows. Coming in at number 21, Atlanta. Atlanta is about a guy and his cousin are trying to like make it in the music business. Earn is having a hard time figuring out what he wants to do with his life until his cousin, who is possibly a part-time drug dealer, accidentally has a minor regional rap hit. It's about Atlanta, this bustling city of where culture and art and music are just up and coming and anybody can be discovered at any moment. It's like doggy dog and it's beautiful and it's grotesque and it's all those things. I think this is just really about, you know, telling real stories. And it does that. I'll say this about Atlanta. I, I mean, I watch it. It's one of my favorite shows. The, uh, the, I'm glad it's not on HBO. Mm-hmm. I think the creative limitations of having to be on FX is good for the show mm-hmm. Yeah, because it is about the Atlanta rap scene. There was an episode at a strip club, you know, there's, there's the opportunity to take it off the rails and maybe the explicit distracting from the characters right. and the actual stories, you know, mm-hmm. and they don't go gratuitous. And I enjoy yeah. that about it because it's all the trappings of that scene. I mean, it's poverty, yeah. it's hustle, it's drugs, it's sex. It's yeah. There are rap, jail, jail scenes. Jail, yeah. It's um, all of yeah. it, but it's done in a way that has to be broadcast friendly. And mm-hmm. I actually appreciate that. What, what, what I think is interesting is it sort of works on like two levels in not just the comedy because a lot of, it's easy to relate to the comedy because the writing's really good. I, but again like, though, I think so the funny. comedy thing, I, really? Cause yeah. I think that, I think there's this whole genre of 30 minute yeah, show it's super dry. called a comedy. That is to me just smart, but it's not funny. I mean, that whole thing. I mean, he does like those fake commercials on that one episode, or he does. I mean, I get things it's that his, are like, like commentary. It's, it's the dialogue, face, yeah. too. Okay. Mm-hmm. See, I, I, I. And the awkward, you know, his awkward pauses. He's very timed and dry with his comedy, but it's like who he is, kind to of. To me, like. this is no more comedy than like Friday Night Lights was a comedy about Texas football. You know, I, I well, yeah. I mean, well, this is coming kind of going into a different conversation. But would you say it's a comedy like Louis was a comedy where you know Louis is a funny guy, but thematically they're dealing with a lot yeah, of yeah. serious yeah. life would, issues. Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would put. I mean, I would. But, say, that, but that's that's what I was saying. I feel like there's yeah. this whole I mean, I, genre of thirty yeah. minute show. I think you're exactly. That right. is called comedy. That's not The Office. I mean, we just talked about yeah. divorce. Like, oh, for sure. For uh, sure. Divorce fits in that genre to me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we talked about baskets earlier. Even though baskets premise is a little more ridiculous. Jesse actually cracks up at baskets. I mean, for real. I, he, I, if you don't crack up at baskets, I think you're barely human and probably need more cheese in your life because you're missing something big. So, no, but what I was going to say one thing I think that I like about the show is that thematically it works on two levels because it does have those interesting like social themes about, uh, you know, different uh, uh, cultural trappings and also issues like, you know, right, the, the Juneteenth episode where there's some awkward conversations about a race and, uh, uh, you know, with people who come from different economic circumstances. But the other level that it works on, I feel like, is for people that kind of feel stuck and for particularly people that maybe feel like they're underachieving, you know, Earn, who's Donald Glover's character, is an Ivy League dropout who is struggling in a lot of ways, and he sees an opportunity to kind of make something out of himself in life. And I feel like even though the circumstances, the exact circumstances, a lot of people probably aren't going to relate to, the idea of feeling like you're underachieving or maybe not doing what you thought you would be doing is relatable no matter where you live or what background you come from. 
And they touch on so many like socioeconomic commentary um, when they, you know, visit their friends or they're visited by friends who are, you know, achieving maybe more than they are. Um, and kind of that pressure. It's it's really interesting to see how they grapple with that and and their own dreams in light of kind of the struggle that they find themselves in. Also, can we can we talk about how what a phenomenal range Danny Glover has as an actor. I mean that he I barely recognize him. He can oh, do totally, he yeah. can do Lethal Weapon. He can the do Saw movies. He can <laughs> do the Saw movie. You know what you know what shocked me is yeah. years ago I really thought he was getting too old for this stuff. <laughs> and here he is. I hey he, I think we could have a relevant top fifty just Danny Glover themed <laughs> pop culture releases. That's how prolific he has been. There was a time when Danny Glover was like in every other movie. And now he's in Atlanta. That was a good era. Yeah. (laughs) Now he's doing this acclaimed FX show. Now you got some hack named Donald. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, Hillsong United has sold tens of millions of albums, (laughs) regularly packs out stadiums, regularly packs out stadiums around the world. And in Let Hope Rise, documentarian Michael John Warren, the man behind films about artists including Drake, Jay-Z, and Nicki Minaj, turns his lens on the worship band from Australia to see what's behind the global phenomenon. The resulting movie is a look at the rise of the Hillsong movement, the people behind the songs, and why they continue to have such a massive impact. Coming in at number 20, Let Hope Rise. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Music has always been something that connects me to God straight away. And I realize, who am I to like lead these people? I'm just a country girl. <laughs> to sing the melody for me for a second. The challenge is to write a new record. I really want to hear what God wants to say. Time to listen, time to breathe, time to clear out all the noise. I really want to hear from heaven. I love these words, I love this music. The music is like nothing I've ever heard. I just felt this hard shell around my heart just begin to crack open. Does everything make sense? Absolutely not. But I think more stuff doesn't make sense without him. Okay, I I'll I know that I'm close to this. I mean, yeah. I, I'm I, I'm friends. I've been friends with the Hillsong guys for quite a while, and and I remember when they were filming this a few years ago. I was aware of it moving from studio to studio and bankruptcies yeah, and it got story. trapped up and all this stuff. And then finally, all of a sudden this year, it's coming out. I um, have been around the Christian industry long enough to be very nervous about this movie, mm-hmm. you know, as their friend. Yeah. Right. So, right, I, so. I go to see it and uh, didn't know what to expect. I mean, what in the world? Why is there a movie about this worship band? You know, mm-hmm. And it was done by a director who's a, not a Christian, and he's done a ton of stuff, including the Jay-Z uh, documentary, um, uh, the Nicki Minaj docu- documentary. And, and I'm just like, what? I mean, this, none of this made sense. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to expect. And I was absolutely blown away. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm there going, I, I mean, just it was so beautifully shot. I think the outsider's perspective that the director brought was important. Yeah, it didn't absolutely. bring self-serving. When I found out later that they had nothing to do with it, they didn't spur it. People came to them. They were nervous, but they thought, well, maybe God could use this, you know, and whatever. Like they didn't have final cut. I mean, like they literally were just really hands off yeah. with it. Comes through that authenticity comes through. 
but more than anything, I'm saying there's just the, 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 the way that they captured the worship experience on film, you really are in the theater transported. I mean, you really feel the presence of God. You really are going, I can't believe I'm watching this in a movie theater. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, like as a Christian, as somebody who's been part of the movement that Hillsong United kind of came up during, I mean, we kind of started around the same time. Mm-hmm. I just, to think that that's like, that was even possible baffles me mm-hmm. and that it yeah. was done well baffles me. And it's like, I am glad we get to celebrate that something like this even exists, you know, that this happened and yeah. um, I'm happy for them. I know that they're just kind of baffled by the whole thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm, and I'm really, I was moved by it. It was really a phenomenal movie. But did it end with a Newsboys concert is what we all want to know. <laughs> oh yeah. Hey, wait, <laughs> which, movie, minutes, which movie did that? <laughs> God's Not Dead or something? Yeah. yeah. All the movies. Yeah. yeah. But Cameron, you and I had the, yeah, all those, all the Kirk Cameron films are contractually obligated to end with a 20 minute Newsboy concert. Um, and, and why not? <laughs> it's just it's part of his deal with Hollywood. Cameron, you and I had the opportunity to see them uh, as they closed out their last tour in Chicago. And that was my first time seeing them live. But one thing that I kind of took away the same feeling that you get when you're uh, watching them lead worship live yeah. is the feeling you get in the theater. And that's not, uh, you know, that's not an easy thing to capture. Yeah. This, um, you know, them being able to, I don't want to over-spiritualize, but anyone who's kind of been in those worship settings knows that kind of like power that those songs have. And, and if the, the ability for them to capture that on, on screen is really, I feel like, something special. Also, it's just an interesting story of how a, a church from Australia essentially became one of the most important Christian movements in modern history. Yeah, even if Hillsong's not your thing, it's just it's interesting on that level. Yeah. And I, I just love the fact that, A, again, it's well done. And we, as Christians from all different streams, uh, have different expressions of worship and, and taste, um, can just kind of cheer each other on in yep. this. It's like, good for them. I mean, because they got an opportunity to be in movie theaters, you know? Mm-hmm. Yay. And, and But again, yeah. we don't have to be like, support the Christian movie because right. it's Christian. It's really good. And yeah. it's worth yeah. it's worth a spot in our countdown. The production is very beautiful it's amazing. too. It's the really, key to me yeah. was was having a direct a director and a vision that Absolutely. wasn't necessarily a Christian mm-hmm. vision. Absolutely. And I think this is something that at least in my experience people hearing about the movie coming out have gotten wrong. I think the the rap at least that I've heard has been that Hillsong has put out a movie or Hillsong is putting out a documentary or something like it would be some kind of puff piece about what Hillsong has done around the world. And in reality, the film itself has moments of, of, pretty striking vulnerability. I mean, each yeah. of the, the band members talks about moments of brokenness and, and where they come from as individuals in worship. And I think communicating that in a way to a, to a director, to a vision for the film that is like a, so why do you do what you do? And isn't just a, hey, y'all, let's all look at how great Hillsong is, comes through. And that's what made it unique and much better than it, than it certainly could have been. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, ever since she debuted the song Formation, the day before performing it at the Super Bowl halftime show, Beyonce's Lemonade has been one of the most talked about releases of the year. The visual album was accompanied by the cinematically stunning HBO film and features guest appearances by a range of artists, including Jack White, Kendrick Lamar, James Blake, and The Weeknd, while its themes grapple with the aftermath of infidelity in ways that are honest and raw. The record is a major departure for the pop superstar, but one that shows the complexity of one of music's biggest names. Coming in at number 19, Beyonce's Lemonade. I see it, I want it, I see it, I want it, I see it, I want it. 
Okay, so if you're listening today and you have not yet listened to Lemonade like I found out Aaron Hanbury over here has, hasn't, I want to set the record straight. This is not a movie or film or album about Beyonce. This is about the experience of, you know, the pressures of being a woman. It's about inequality, uh, you know, racial disparity. It's about um, Beyonce honestly taking this platform that she's never really been vulnerable with, with, right? She's always had this perfectionism and talking about, you know, her daddy issues in in a song called Daddy Lessons and speaking to a lot of things that honestly her fan base and much of like, many people that know Beyonce haven't heard about her before. So if you haven't listened to this, seen it, it's incredibly beautiful, stunning cinematography. You need to watch it, Aaron. Well, and and she does very vulnerably and like, what kind of deal with uh, infidelity in her marriage and yeah. stuff. Totally. Like in the song, yeah. Sorry. And here's, here's Sorry. I think about you. I'm sorry. I feel like a lot of people up to now kind of thought they knew Beyonce and and obviously she's been like a great artist and has cultivated this incredible persona, but this kind of makes you rethink what you knew about her, not just musically, because it's a huge progression musically. I mean, you know, not just the collaborations with some of those artists we mentioned, uh, but, but, you know, she's kind of expanding her range of what she's doing, but also there's this social consciousness to it, uh, you know, in, in part of the film, the mothers of uh, Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and Eric Gardner making appearances. There's a thread throughout the entire album and the, you know, her, even, you know, some people have said in her Super Bowl performance that uh, is raising awareness about uh, some serious justice issues. It's an incredible turn, I think, for one of the most important pop stars that's making music right now. Yeah. And the film as a whole, like it goes through this narrative of, you know, brokenness and and with this theme of infidelity and it goes into kind of rebuilding out of the ashes like a Phoenix and and that story about redemption. Making lemonade out of lemons. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Oh. I don't know if Aaron got that. Yeah. 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 He needs needs a quiet room with some cheese. Life, if sometimes life gives you lemons, buddy. But. But you know what? You can make an album and call it Lemonade and, mm. and turn it on its head. And, and, and like Rebecca was saying, the film is stunning, too. If, if you have a chance to see it on you know, HBO Go or wh- Did whatever. Did you see the extra, the, the extra track that was cut from the main one uh, no. where, where Danny Glover had a duet <laughs> with her, showing off his range yet again? <laughs> Well, once again, the moment I think he's Beyonce getting too old for Beyonce's seen in this. a stadium, flapping her wings. If Danny Glover like, is Glover, it, was, it wasn't a Daddy Glover. Issues, it was called Danny Grandpa Glover. Issues, and Danny Glover came out. <laughs> it's called Too Old for This. <laughs> <laughs> it's a phenomenal track. I don't know why they cut it. It makes no sense. <laughs> well, for, for listeners that want to know if Danny Glover, in fact, makes an appearance on our relevant top 50, it's looking doubtful at this point. <laughs> You'll be, we want to be sure to tune in because next week uh, we're going to be at number 18. So it's, we're coming down the home stretch here of, of our favorite releases of the year. But in the meantime, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Relevant Podcast. Also, I want to thank our sponsor today. Video Blocks. You can get your year subscription today for only $149 at videoblocks.com slash relevant. That's Video Blocks, V-I-D-E-O, 
B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash relevant for this discounted offer. Well, guys, thanks so much uh, for another round. Uh, We'll be back at it next week. In the meantime, I'm Jesse Carey. I'm Cameron Strang. I'm Aaron Hanbury. Rebecca Joe. I'm Cameron's brother. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting too old for this. I'll see you guys next week. (laughs) 